The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and this is episode 18. Today, we are joined by Joe Ciampelli, if I pronounced that correctly, which now that I'm thinking about it, I probably didn't. How are you doing today, Joe? Uh, I'm doing just fine, all things considered. And uh, you did you did pretty good. It's Ciampelli. I say yep. champ like a boxer and E-L-L-I. It, it happens. I look at the names and then I get in my own head and then just the tongue keeps going. And you're like, <laughs> what am I doing? Anyway, so uh, Joe is the vice president of uh, Entertainment Project Services, which uh, our listeners will recognize as the company that Eric Rouse works for. And you guys are based in Las Vegas. However, you're not in Vegas, correct? That's correct. We have uh, offices in Louisville and Denver and Orlando. Eric Rouse is uh, based out of Denver and I'm in Louisville and we have uh, an office in Orlando. Gotcha. Well, I'll ask the question. I start with everyone. Who are you and 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 how did you get into the, the entertainment rigging side of the business? Uh, who am I? I am um, I am a mechanical designer by trade. Um, but I am uh, first and foremost a husband. I've been married for 25 years to a fantastic woman, and uh, we've got three awesome kids, uh, age 22, 19, and 16. Got to make sure I don't screw that up. They keep they keep getting older, so it's hard to remember that sometimes. Right, they keep changing it on you. That's right. <laughs> um. So I, I like saying that first because it's one of the things that I've just I've really tried to do throughout the years is is balance that work family life. Um, but uh, but in the entertainment industry, I am a mechanical designer. I'm also uh, a well with EPS, I'm vice president, which uh, means I get to wear a lot of different hats. Mechanical designer being my favorite hat that I wear, um, but I also help with uh, daily operations and. Uh, recruiting people and project management, all kinds of fun things. Um, I got my start. I, I'm from the Chicago area, and I went to Oak Park River Forest High School, um, same place that uh, Ernest Hemingway graduated from and Ray Kroc to kind of run the full spectrum there. Um, and we had a great theater program. And uh, I actually credit my mother with getting me started because uh, summer before my freshman year, um, she said, go on over to the high school and take a class. The high school is fairly large. It's uh, about 3,500 uh, students, I think, at the time. And um, so her idea was go over to the high school and take a class so that you're not lost as a freshman. Take a class in the summer before your freshman year. And the year before, my sister, who's one year older than me, she went and she was in the musical um, uh, Sound of Music. She was one of the one of the nuns in the sea of you know 100 nuns in the background. And um, 
so my mother said, go on over and, you know, maybe try out for the play. So I was sitting in the audience and they said, okay, everybody's going to come up on stage and you're going to sing a song and, and we'll give you something to say, and that'll be your audition. And if you don't want to do that, go with that guy over there and do the lights or something. And so that was my, my introduction to working backstage is I, I tapped my friend on the shoulder and I said, Hey, let's, uh, let's go do that. Cause I don't feel like getting up and singing in front of a bunch of people. I don't know. Um, and that was, that was my start in entertainment, um, working, being a theater geek in high school and then learned that I could do that in college and, um, went from a undergraduate program at Illinois state to a, um, graduate program at Penn state. And then, uh, got lucky out of Penn state with, um, some good, good contacts and, uh, started my career out in Las Vegas. So what was that, uh, what was that first job in Vegas? Well, I had, um, my, uh, professor and mentor at Penn state is, uh, Rick was Rick Gray. Is Rick Gray? He's still a mentor. Um, he, uh, I was in my third year of grad school and I was pretty burned out because I was in undergrad. I studied design. I studied set design and lighting design and everything. I would, everything from, stage management, sound design, you name it. I, I, I did everything and then wanted to go to grad school because I really felt like um, I, I was being drawn more towards the technical aspect, uh, but I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had enough of a background to just go out into the workforce. Um, so I went to Penn State and um, Rick had contacts in New York, uh, but after, after, Two years, two and a half years of Penn State, I was pretty burned out with being at school. And being from the Chicago area, I had um, I had made some contacts with a scene shop in Chicago, and that shop was um, Scenic View, um, a competitor to Chicago Scenic. And I don't think Scenic View is around anymore, but um, uh, they were great fun to work with, and I was working there for a couple of summers, and they wanted to hire me after grad school. And um, they said, well, maybe you can even do an internship. So I, I went to Rick Gray and I said, I'm, I'm done with all the coursework. I've TD'd a bunch of shows. Um, I've taken classes outside the department and I'm looking to do an internship. What do you think? Um, and I can come back and I can finish my final thesis, whatever on campus. But um, uh, I wanna do this in Chicago. And Rick said, well, I think that's a good idea, but you're from Chicago and you've kind of done that scene there. Um, why don't you check out New York? And um, Rick set me up with a couple of interviews and um, I went into the, uh, went into interview at Showtech. And I remember walking through, I had just been, I'd been using AutoCAD for a couple of years. And I remember walking through their, their design office and they had on their screen um, a 3D wireframe of the project, the, the, the big project they were working on. And um, I remember looking at that screen and it was just a sea of lines. And I had this panic in my, in my gut, like, I can't even, I don't even know what I'm looking at. What am I doing here in this shop in New York? And uh, just this moment of, of uh, excitement mixed with fear, you know, and, um, uh, so I 
I met with them, I interviewed with them, and the guy that was running their design department there said um, that they thought they they could use me, but I would be I would just be laying out uh, platforms like laying out decks for Broadway shows, and he wasn't sure I would find that interesting, but that they could they could carve out an internship for me. So I left that feeling pretty cool, like okay, maybe I'll go and do this thing in New York. Um, and then about a week later, a couple weeks maybe after that interview, I got a phone call and I was at home. It was uh, the holiday break and I got a phone call from somebody at show. Actually, it was um, Dan Hanessian. I think Dan is, I think he's still teaching at, uh, at uh, SUNY Purchase, but I might have the school wrong. Anyway, Dan was working for Showtech at the time, and he said, uh, "He said, hey, you interviewed in our in our New York shop. Uh, what would you think about getting on a plane and interviewing out in Vegas?" And I said, "Sure, that's that sounds cool." <laughs> so they bought me a ticket, and the next thing I know, I was I went from the snowy cold of Chicago to the sunny warmth of Vegas, and I. Um, I landed and Dan gave me great advice. He said, um, don't take the first offer they give you. This is what you, what you might be signing up for is going to be really intense. Um, so make sure that they don't lowball you. And I said, great. He brings me to the office. Um, I interviewed and I immediately accepted the first thing they offered me. <laughs> um, <laughs> They were working on uh, they were working on Buccaneer Bay at the time, the, the pirate show in front of Treasure Island. And they were looking for somebody. They were really interviewing for somebody to run their CAD department. And um, it was, uh, I was supposed to meet with Wyatt DeFridis, who was the head project manager on that for Showtech. And he wasn't available. And the person who interviewed me for that job was Scott Fisher. And... Scott, um, we met and then um, we chatted and he immediately grabbed uh, Pete Menching, who was running Showtech's offices out in Vegas. And um, Pete said, yeah, he asked me a couple of questions. And then Wyatt came in and they asked me, they both asked me a few questions. And then Pete's, Pete was pretty blunt. He said, he said, you're not ready to run this department. They, you know, they're, they, they bury bodies in the desert out here. <laughs> which I think he probably said that before we negotiated the salary. So I was already a little freaked out. And, um, uh, but I got the job and then I, I went from that interview to, I walked out of the offices within two hours. I had an apartment and, uh, a few hours after that, I was back on a plane back to Chicago and they wanted me out. They wanted me out in Vegas immediately. Um, and I think it was maybe three or four days, you know, I, I just threw everything in a big truck and drove out to Vegas. And that was, that was my start was working on that show. And the way that had, the way that came about was Showtech had, um, there was a company that was originally building that, uh, show and they were not up to the task, I guess, or I don't know the details. I was, I was, uh, wet behind the ears at that time and uh uh Showtech had gotten the contract to uh to do the show but they were they were coming in as the rescue company uh essentially and it was 
I think, 10 months from the time they got the, they got the contract to the time the show was opening. And so it was, it was a very intense trial by fire kind of experience to be um, working in that environment um, to go from educational theater to construction, permanent install environment. Uh, it was, it was pretty intense. Dan, Dan Hanessian was, was right. <laughs> and uh, I should have listened to his advice. And, and you are correct. He is uh, still at SUNY. Oh, good. Uh, thanks to uh, Google. Um, and my, my ability to roughly spell his last name. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that closes, I believe that closes a loop on SUNY. Um, Rick Gray taught there before he taught at Penn State. Um, and I think Dan was one of Rick Gray's students. Um, so just a small world of technical theater kind of loop that gets yeah. But that does bring up what we've talked about a bit in other podcasts, which is um, we are a high value small market, meaning that a lot of the projects we do are high in value. And, and obviously, because it's entertainment, it's looked at by lots of people, but the market itself is relatively small. Um, yeah. So it's about those relationships and and making a good impression and, and having a good reputation. So, Absolutely. um, so you, you, what happened when you finished the, uh, the, uh, treasure Island project, because obviously that had a, okay, well, the show is open jobs done. You moved to Vegas, but what was next? Yeah, I, well, I had, um, I was in this unique situation because, Rick had um, greenlighted this quote unquote internship, which was really just my first job. And, you know, a get out of school early card kind of is really the way it worked out. Um, uh, but I, 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 I wanted to finish my degree. I wanted to get that graduate degree. And more importantly, I think Rick wanted me to get that graduate degree. Um, and years later I taught, um, at the University of Tennessee, and I kind of look back on this experience from a professor's standpoint, and uh, from somebody that that was in a position to recruit students, I realized, you know, Rick really, um, it, it was in Penn State's interest to make sure that they had um, people going through their MFA program that actually earned their MFA degree. Um, and the the person that was in his program the year ahead of me or two years ahead of me had left the program early. And to this day, he still, he, um, he sells Autodesk software. So he went from being a TD student to being a, uh, a salesman. And so I think that I've never really talked to Rick about this. So this is just my impression, but I think he really wanted, he really wanted me to get that degree um, as a, as something that the, uh, to help the university as well as helping me. And right. Uh, Anyway, I say all that to because I was motivated to get that to get that degree, and um, when when Treasure Island was in its final, like the ships were being painted and and ready to go out the door, Showtech got the contract to do the um, to do Sunset Boulevard in 
uh, I think it was the Schubert, Schubert Theater in Los Angeles. And Sunset Boulevard has this massive house that flies. And um, I was kind of right person in the right place with, you know, when, when opportunities present themselves, you can raise your hand and find yourself in unique situations. And I wound up designing the rigging for Sunset Boulevard. And that was my, that wound up being my thesis project for, um, for Penn State is uh, kind of how I spent my summer designing rigging. Um, but Showtech, Showtech had the two shops. They had Showtech in New York and Showtech in Vegas. And the, there was so much work going on and Showtech took on a, a whole lot of work and ultimately couldn't keep up with it. And so the writing was on the wall that, um, that Showtech might not be around much longer in, in, its, in its Las Vegas form. And so I had a, a friend that uh, I met while working there, Rusty Mayhew. And Rusty worked for Showtech during the day, and he worked at the Siegfried and Roy show at night. And so um, as things looked like they were taking a downturn at Showtech, um, Rusty came up to me one day and said, hey, we're, we have an opening at the Siegfried and Roy show. Would you be interested in applying? And this was a, it was a automation operator position, um, basically hitting the green button uh, for the shows at night. And while I hadn't, I hadn't really considered, you know, I, I was interested in in the design and project management aspect of things. I wasn't really, uh, wasn't really interested in, in, I hadn't really thought about taking a position like that. But I realized um, it was either find something else in Vegas or get on a plane back to Chicago. And I still had this thesis thing that I needed to kind of wrap up. And with it being a nighttime gig, I thought, okay, I can, I can do that. I can wrap up my thesis and then you know, see what's next. And so I did. I took the job at uh, the Siegfried and Roy show, which was just an amazing experience and met and worked with a lot of uh, very talented people and, um, and got to finish writing my thesis and um, graduated from Penn State with an MFA in technical direction and all um, uh, did it while, while making an elephant disappear twice a night. So. That's pretty cool. I, uh, I, uh, one of the things that I got to do after I graduated from Emerson, I was uh, freelancing in the Boston market and was about to move to Seattle and got an offer to do an open-ended run of a magic show, a new production in Boston, uh, which had, uh, was called Kissed by Mag Magic. And it was Rocco. I can't remember Rocco's last name, but in the late 90s, he was winning all the sleight of hand competitions. It was mm. really, really good. And I believe Joni Spear, the last name is eluding me, Joni. Uh, she had worked with Copperfield for years, and she was trying to break that glass ceiling of women magicians in the magic industry. Mm. So they had the show, which had a little plot to it and a bunch of their illusions. And I got to work with uh, a gentleman who was out of New Jersey who had done a bunch of stuff for Copperfield and learned about lighting for magic. 
and that kind of exposed me to that side of the business. And um, like many shows, it was open-ended, which lasted a month. It didn't, didn't quite hit the open-ended part of it, right. um, but had learned uh, at that point some tricks and different things that I was able to use and then and met some other magicians who work in the industry, which culminated in doing a uh, an illusion with Len Dillies, who is a magician based out of the Northeast. And again, early 2000s, she was working on Get Out the Vote project, and she did an elephant disappearing at a zoo and got to work with that with a, a big trust structure, creating that outdoors and, and working on that. Um, so, yeah, making elephants disappear is fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I was surprised. My interview was actually during the show. They said, come on up and watch the show. And um, I was in the booth, you know, watching on the infrared cameras. And it was shocking how simple the effect was to, to pull off. Um, the re the reappearance of the elephant was technical wizardry, but the but the um, uh, the disappearance was really just simple stagecraft. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to the old saying of uh, smoke and mirrors. You know. Yeah, not absolutely, and, and and keep it simple. Yeah. So, um, so you start as an operator for the show. Um, how long were you there with that? run i was there for three and a half years um and i was there for that long because i was uh i had the opportunity to be more than just a show operator i think ultimately i would have um i would have left sooner but we were um we were the 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 situation at the mirage at the time was really just perfect they Steve Wynn understood that the show brought the brought the the guests into the casino, and he knew that whatever it took to keep that show running, uh, he gave the crew uh, and the management of the show pretty pretty broad range to do what it took to keep the show happening. And in the the three and a half years I was there, I think we only walked the house maybe uh, twice. Maybe only once. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, meaning the a technical glitch that caused it caused the show to just not be able to go on and you know give the audience their money back kind of thing. Um, and there was when there was a main lift right in the middle of the of the uh, stage floor, huge lift, um, and that failed. The the hydraulic ram failed on that and. Uh, there was no recovery to get to keep the show going, um, but otherwise we did um, we did maintenance and special projects all the time to make sure that that show could happen. Uh, at the time, we were doing six six days a week, two shows a night, and so it was we would have um, we would have dark periods where we would they would bring in a headliner who would you know do do an act. Uh, comedian would do a thing you know on stage at night and during the day then we would maintain the equipment um so that was very interesting and that's i learned a lot um working on those kinds of projects and then we also took on special projects where um we did one of the first ones that i remember was a high speed high speed hoist um 
at the time we called them all winches. We, we hadn't, the industry hadn't really adopted wire rope, adopted the word hoist for wire ropes. Um, so everything was winches. Um, we did a high speed winch so that Rory could get from stage level to uh, to the catwalk area very quickly for a reappearance thing. And um, so then I think it was 10 foot per second or maybe it was only seven, seven feet per second hoist that we did. Um, but I worked with uh, Joe McGeo and Rusty Mayhew and uh, Dale Hurt and we would we would design and build these cool things. And um, um, there was that. And then the other really big one we did was a tiger, uh, tiger disappearance reappearance thing. Uh, it was called the, the Tiger Leap. And um, that was the first time we, that was my first time doing 3D design. Rusty Mayhew uh, drove that, uh, drove that bus and, and uh, we went, we we did uh it was right on the time windows 95 was happening i think so we had uh <clears throat> we upgraded to windows 95 and autocad uh 13 which was the first windows version of autocad i think anyway yeah. i'm going off on a geek tangent about software and cad but um it was not a good time <laughs> both of those the whole the windows thing was just kind of really happening and, and autocad was trying to catch up and uh but we did that project and uh, we designed the whole thing in AutoCAD 3D and it was just a fabulous experience. We would, we would, um, when, when those projects were happening, I came off of the, I came off of the nighttime run crew. So there was somebody who was, who was shadowing my position would take over running the show at night. And then I would work, uh, I would shift to a completely daytime schedule in order to, help with uh with the design and build of um, some of those things that it, it was it was after a run of that and then i was back up in the i was back up in the booth running shows and things were starting to change bellagio was starting to be built and people were were kind of being peeled off the supreme roy show to go work on that and i had been contacted by some uh people that I had met while at Penn State uh, to do some freelance design work. And so I just, after about the thousandth time of hearing uh, Tusk uh, by Fleetwood Mac, that, that was the, at the end of the show when the elephant came out, they would play, he would come out to that song. And I thought I was gonna lose my mind listening to that song every night. So I, I said to my wife, I said, I think if I, if I had a few more clients, a few more customers that I could do this um, design, design kind of consulting project management stuff, like as a, as a freelance full-time thing. So that was after three and a half years there that I, I left. Yep. Started pursuing the uh, non-performance based employment. Um, yeah. It's funny. You mentioned AutoCAD 13. I started on AutoCAD in high school and I think it's uh, uh, an interesting historical fact that originally AutoCAD was not, it's not like it is today. There was no GUI interface, really. It wasn't, you clicked on the screen at one point and drew a line in a direction. Uh, AutoCAD, when it started, was almost like Lego, uh, like Logo on the Apple, the early Apples in the 80s, which was you put in a coordinate, 
you say you want to do a line, you basically would have to do an XY coordinate mm -hmm. and a second XY coordinate, and then it would draw a line between those two points. Yeah. Um, and then when you got fancy, you got the pen tablet, which would allow you to select the tools, and then you could start to drop the coordinates by touching on the pen tablet roughly. Um, and it wasn't until Clarisworks became Minicad, became Vectorworks, that AutoCAD started going to a more GUI interface. And Windows helped facilitate that. But yeah, drafting in 3D in AutoCAD in the mid-90s was not like it is today. It's not like you're you're pulling a block and dropping that or a symbol. Um, it is, it's almost just like hand drafting, which is, it's all by lines. And, and you started there and um, kind of like the early lighting consoles when you uh, want to do a circle with a moving light, you can only do a square. But if you speed up the time, it can't reach all the points. So you learn these tricks. Same thing with AutoCAD. You would learn tricks how to do things. And Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that about the lighting consoles. The lighting consoles? Yeah, early. My first lighting console that I learned to program, moving lights, was a uh, Martin 3032, which was a computer-based software. And basically, your movement was a square, you know, a grid with X and Y coordinates and a big white dot, and that was where the moving light was aimed. So you could basically click on the screen and say, go from point one to point two, point three, and point four. Well, if you wanted to, to kind of do a figure eight, for instance, the easiest way to do that was to draw out your points it would want to go kind of in straight lines but if you increase the speed it couldn't because basically what it was saying is okay this is eight steps and take a beat per minute let's say to go between each step well if you increase that speed it can't reach those points so right. it cuts the corner and and so you learn little tricks like that you couldn't do macros or anything yeah, there weren't any effects generators at that point. It was just people learning how to massage the software to get the result they were uh, they wanted, and that's what got frustrating for me as a as a programmer was I wasn't that smart. I was just like, nope, nope, software not for me. I'm a I'm a like you, a mechanical person. I want the tactile side of things. Right, right. Yeah, so, I, I tell my we have uh, our design team at EPS. Uh, we 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 have this struggle with long file names where we have uh, on certain server systems you can actually get to the limit of what is acceptable in terms of long file names and so I get my old guy hat on and I say don't make me tell you stories about 8.3 where we had to come up with these unique names that had to live in the DOS environment that we only had the eight characters and the and the extension. But yep. They they don't like hearing about those uh, those old days. Well, but actually, the it's funny um, thinking about it. The the Buccaneer Bay show that um, there was no server system there. That entire pirate show, all the drawings for both ships, control system, the whole nine yards, was all done on uh, the the three and a half inch floppy disks. And we would we would toss the disks to each other when we needed to share files. <laughs> yeah. That it's it's funny and and I was talking with some friends about uh my first computer was a nineteen eighty one eighty two uh Apple three mm -hmm. and there weren't a lot of them 
it was supposed to be the successor to the Apple IIe, I believe. Um, and the hard drive was the size. I used to say it was the size of a VCR, but that's even a dated reference. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the size of, all right, we'll, we'll get very specific. It was probably a 3U in a rack. So three rack spaces in your uh, equipment rack. Right. So it was probably that size. So like 19 inches wide and about three and a half, four inches tall. It was five megs. <laughs> that was the storage. And then it had five and a quarter floppy drive. Um, and and that was, you know, wow, this is great. I don't have to put a disc in every time I want to run this software or, or do anything. Um, yeah. 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 And how much it changes now. But that brings up an interesting uh topic that we could actually talk about which is um how show control and automation was in that time period versus now um i think a lot of people have you know you know what qlab is and you know that you can use midi or osc to have qlab trigger a whole bunch of other things so you start getting this synchronization like i want to play the video or sound file and i want the lighting to do this action and I need this microphone to unmute at this time. And you can do that with one button now, once you program it. How was the automation on those early projects in terms of the control side? What were you guys having to do was, you know? Yeah, it, it, it certainly wasn't the, the program a button on your laptop kind of thing. Um, the the Siegfried Roy show, that was all um, largely, the initial install at least, was all uh, DC motors run by uh, FinCore DC drives. And there was a gentleman out of um, uh, Michigan, or he's up in Minnesota, Lance. Uh, I want to say his last name was Finberg. I'm so bad with names. Uh, but it was Lance, and he was the mastermind behind uh, behind the software. And the software was called AutoQ, and it ran um, it ran that whole the the entire show. Um, but it was it was open loop. It was um, it was zero to ten turn pots for position feedback. Uh, the software ran on old DOS machines, and uh, uh, his software communicated with the DC drives and uh, gave us a, a graphic position feedback. Um, but that was it was very very early automation. The the positions were were between zero and hundred, so you you weren't running to a known distance. You were just running to a relative mark, really. Um, the so the in terms of that show, you know, early on there was no there was no um, synchronization uh, with like a SMPTE time code. Uh, but then when the uh, the Buccaneer Bay show was built that did have uh, customization that allowed uh, SMPTE time code with the, the audio and the, and the automation. Um, but I was, I was right out of school. So I wasn't, I wasn't really uh, in the loop, no pun intended on, uh, on the details of how that, how those control systems worked. Um, but when we started developing uh at Fisher, when we started developing software, we were really riding that same that same curve of the advancement of computer technology and 
most importantly, the advancements in terms of speed of uh, data and the communication protocols that we started exploring and where where we went with um, with how fast the automation systems need to be in order to be safe. That was a really that was a, a huge focus to um, how we developed those systems and what we used at the time. Right. Well, let's talk about that because I think that it's a, a an important part of automation history. And really, Alex, I'll articulate something that maybe we should have said in the beginning, which is your um, your body of work within entertainment rigging has really been towards the advancement of automation, uh, in particular in performer flying effects. And we'll get to, to what you did with that, both uh, from a work and a, a standard standpoint. But I had mentioned with uh, Jim Shumway from Tate about Navigator, mm-hmm. and that's their control software. That was actually developed by uh, Fishner Technical Services, which you helped create the, the company uh, after you, you had left uh, Siegfried and Royd and had done your design stuff. Let's talk about Fisher Tech. Sure. Yeah, we, um, I had, uh, so I left uh, the Siegfried and Roy show and I was working on my own for about a year, year and a half. And um, the Bellagio Hotel was being built and Scott Fisher was, um, I'm horrible at remembering, you know, titles and positions, but let's say project manager. Uh, He was, or assistant technical coordinator, let's say that. Um, Scott worked for Rick Gray. Uh, to help get that show installed. Um, Jeanette Farmer also worked with, uh, with Rick. So they were in the job trailer on the job site and they, they, um, uh, they were the force behind getting that uh, uh, show installed. When, when Bellagio was still a hole in the ground, they were working on making sure the infrastructure was being designed and, and put into that space. Um, and I got hired to do some freelance work. Um, Joe McGill reached out to me to help with some layout on um, uh, design of uh, some of the rigging. And then um, Jeanette had hired me to do some visualization work to look at um, like spotlight positions that they were laying out in the theater. Um, so I was back and forth to the job trailer a lot. And um, one day Scott said to me, um, he said that he had been contacted by people that he had worked with over the years and that people kept saying, why are you doing this design project management stuff? Why don't you also build the gear? Why wouldn't it be cool if you built, build stuff? And he said, how'd you like to start a company where we build cool stuff? And I said, sure, that sounds great. Um, and Scott actually had a, we had a meeting with, there were five people uh, that Scott, it, it was amazing. He showed up, uh, with a catalog that he had been visualizing. And the idea was um, that Fisher Technical would be, the company wasn't even named at that point, um, but the idea was that this company would create um, automation and only automation. That up to then, like if you look at Siegfried Roy show and what was happening on Broadway is that automation would be an add-on that the shops would do for, uh, in order to get the, to get the contract. 
So they were going after the big scenery contact, contract, the big, you know, the long-term rental on a Broadway show, and automation would be um, another part of the package. So we were at the time, um, and state it wasn't it wasn't only us. It was uh, I think Stage Tech, uh, Stage Technologies, in uh, in uh, the UK. They were a similar kind of company where it was just a focus on automation. Um, and Scott had this catalog that he had envisioned of all the different products that we could offer. And from day one, he said, you know, all of this equipment needs to be able to talk to each other with a common control system. And, um, you know, and, and who's with me? And I was the only one uh, young and dumb enough to raise my hand and say, sure, I'll join you. And uh, that was the start of Fisher Technical. Um, Scott had been running as Fisher Technical uh, as his own freelance thing. And that, I have to say that I can't remember on Bellagio if he was there as an as a outside contractor, or if he was, um, I don't know the details there, but um, Fisher had, had Fisher Technical had been in existence. And then we started Fisher Technical Incorporated um, for the purpose of building cool stuff. Um, and we got, we got really lucky just uh, right out of the gate, we had clients that were, I think Universal Studios was one of our first clients, and then uh, Cirque, we built some of the, the machines that are uh, that are still in use today. Uh, well, not today, sadly, but still in existence at the, uh, at the O show. Right. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to be at the uh, ground floor uh, for a company that is um is going to be so influential in automation i i would say you know not just in the states but globally and that some of the products that you guys developed um were so innovative and especially the software that they continue on today and and for the listeners fisher was acquired by tate uh some years ago now Time flies when you're having fun. That's um, right. And, uh, but that Navigator software is still used and is still uh, one of the, the you know, forerunners, I should say, in, in automation control. So that's pretty cool to, to, to be involved with that from the, the ground up. And especially with Cirque starting, I mean, I think for a lot of people getting in the business today, Cirque is, you know, was still is still hopefully will be you know this giant within live entertainment and performer flying uh some news came out recently that hopefully uh is some good news that uh once things start getting back to some semblance of normalcy that Cirque will still be around and still doing shows but when they first started when first when o first opened i mean that was you know, trend setting. No one was doing shows like that. And the technology needed to pull that off was groundbreaking. Yeah, it was, it was really the, the whole experience was, was a, a lot of fun and B just, we, we didn't really, we didn't know what, what it would become. Um, you know, I remember looking at, looking at shop spaces and our first shop was a it was just an empty five thousand square foot little warehouse and um it it grew pretty rapidly um it was a a rapid fire growth over over uh 
over the years, those early years. Um, it's funny, you, you mentioned about rapid growth, and this is just, uh, you know, something that I've been dealing with recently, personally, on, on with my business growth, which is, if you're getting into business yourself, if, if you've decided that you're going to start your own business, doesn't matter what your age is, some of, you know, I'll share this information with you. One of the things you don't think about in terms of actually being a headache or a challenge is you can grow too fast. And it's not a oh, I can't just do all of the work. There's only me and I have too much work to do and there are not enough hours. But there are things that you don't think about, like your business can grow so fast that the scale of projects you're doing grows so quickly, but your business uh, economy, to say, or, or the economics of your business don't grow at the same speed. So your ability to do things like, you know, get credit cards, get business loans, have capital to pay for equipment that you're trying to install doesn't grow at the same rate. So um, it's one of those, it's one of those things where, and, and especially when you're talking Cirque in those clients, those aren't, you know, $5,000 projects. Those are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of equipment and a lot of R and D where you're not going to get what is known as return on investment ROI, um, you get no you get no immediate ROI on R&D. You will, hopefully, in the long term, but that doesn't necessarily pay your bills month to month as you're trying to solve the problems. Right. Yeah, I have a, I have a favorite saying that um, you will probably recognize. Um, nothing drives development like a purchase order. And that comes from that experience in Fisher where we would want to, we would want to develop the next step in the software, or we would want to design a new winch. And we would think if only we had the time to stop doing these, you know, these projects that we're working on and focus on the development. But it was really the, those purchase orders for those projects that would drive the next stage of development. Um, and, and Fisher was very much that story, that bootstrapping, you know, started with with relatively little and uh, just poured everything back into the company to to develop that, uh, to develop those products. And uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, uh, I really enjoy that phase of, uh, of working with the company, then having done it a few times that, you know, that how do you take, how do you take the passion of a startup and turn it into an organized uh, company, and that's um, it, it's uh, it isn't easy. And I, I would say, advice to anybody out there who's starting a company: um, develop a relationship with uh, with your local bank and uh, explore things like line of credits, uh, because exactly what Ethan just said that that the pace of the projects versus your uh, financial game plan is that's there's as much art in that as there is in uh, creating cool stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Fisher Tech, you're working on lots of projects there. Um, I want to talk about your next opportunity that presents it to yourself, how that came to be. And then once we get into that, we'll talk about what I think is um, a very significant part of your contribution to the business, which is going to be a Nancy standard dealing with performer flying. 
So sure. How 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 did that first again, like a lot of these things, you you transition from one place to another? Yeah. So um, um, I'm just trying to map out how to tell the how to tell the next phase without it being too long and boring. Um, so Fisher grew rapidly. We went from uh, we it was you know. Scott, me, you know, little warehouse. And then the first person we hired was Dana because we started building gear. And I said, hey, I know this guy owns a welder and he could come over and start welding stuff for us. And uh, so that was Dana Bartholomew was our, uh... oh, I got to tell you, in in uh, when, after you invited me to, to do this, I listened to a couple of episodes and I listened to the one with uh, Meredith. And mm-hmm. you all were talking about, uh, the numbers that the that the ETCP uh, technicians are are uh, assigned, and how Dana had uh, 007. 007. And then, <laughs> did you tell him about my offer? <laughs> I haven't had the chance yet. I will. I'll call him up for you. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't talked to him in a while. Um, for the listeners, Dana uh, is now with uh, Silver State Wire Rope mm-hmm. in uh, Las Vegas. Um, but is still heavily involved with the entertainment business and, and works actually is on the uh, 1.39 revision task group with me uh, for the fall arrest standard. Um, and is a great guy, but yeah, he was, he was a Fisher guy and um, he has ETCP 007. And in the episode with Meredith, I made an offer. I'd buy it from him. <laughs> Yeah, and then when I heard that, I was like, "Oh, that is so Dana." He uh, he he prided himself on being employee number three at at Fisher, and would would let people know that. Uh, yep. Um, so we we were growing the company rapidly, and um, at the same time, um, I had a growing family, and um, we we went from. Uh, four employees to eight to 20 employees pretty quickly over the course of two years, really. And um, then we got the contract for LaRev, uh, where we did all of the automation. And again, so it's you know, just so sad to say the names of these shows. Uh, LaRev was at the Wynn Hotel, Wynn Resorts um, uh, the, in Vegas and uh, recently just closed. Um, and, but just a fabulous show and full of automation, uh, very cool stuff. But we, we had gotten the contract to do that and we grew the company from, uh, again, up to, you know, 30 people that year. And while working on the Rev and working on other projects, it was just rapid fire growth. And I was doing mechanical design as well as, you know, the operations stuff, hiring and firing and, you know, working on, the infrastructure of the organization really as, as we grew. Um, and it was, uh, it was stressful. I was, uh, I was sleeping on the floor of my office to meet design deadlines and, um, and uh, it was, it was taking a toll. And I had, I had, um, I had seen people that I admired in the industry um, choose the, their, their uh, work over their family life 
And even though I'm super guilty of choosing work more often than family life, I didn't want to continue to do that. Um, we had always, my wife and I had always talked about as soon as our kids are old enough to look up at the billboards in Vegas and say, what's that? Then we wanted to be out of Vegas. <laughs> and so um, what, what occurred was we were in the middle of working on the Rev and a friend of mine from Penn State called me up and he said, hey, we're looking for somebody to teach um, entertainment technology and your name came up. And I said, there's no way I could even think about doing that. Uh, we're in the middle of this huge project and we're building this company and I'm from Chicago. I don't, you know, I don't live in Tennessee. <laughs> um, and so he's, uh, he's a great guy, great friend. Um, his name's Kenton Yeager and he's teaching. He's still, a, he's at uh, UT, uh, has a great uh, lighting design program there. And <clears throat> for anybody who knows Kenton, uh, Kenton can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. He's, he's got uh, super high energy, great fun. And so he said to me, he said, okay, I get it. Um, but look, we, you know, we're, we're searching this position and I just want to be able to show the search committee what kind of people are out there. Would you mind just dusting off a resume and send it to me just as an example? I said, sure. <clears throat> so I sent him the resume. A few weeks later, he calls me up and says, they love your resume. Why don't you just come out and meet people out here? And, you know, I was, it was, there were a lot of different, uh, uh, reasons why I got on that plane, but I got on that plane and I landed in Tennessee and there was greenery and naturally occurring water. And uh, I realized, oh, there's sometimes the universe tells you that there are opportunities you should explore. And this might be that thing. Because it's one thing to say we're going to leave Vegas when our kids get to be a certain age. There's another thing to actually make that happen. And that was the opportunity that I kind of saw. And um, at the time, the University of Tennessee, their philosophy was, and I think it largely still is, that the professors work professionally so that the students gain the knowledge from active projects. And the way the position was presented to me was uh, you, can, you can teach You'll only, you'll only be in the classroom, you won't have any shop responsibilities, um, and we want you to stay professionally. Because that's what I, what I said to Kenshin was, I just don't see how I, I can give up this all this good stuff we're doing at Fisher. I just don't see how we could do it. And he said, what if you didn't have to? And that's what got me on the plane, and that's what ultimately got us uh, out to Tennessee. Um, it, was, it was a while. I said... They were great and I worked with them. I went and did a couple of short term, like I would go for a week or two to teach while we were still working on the Rev. Um, and then it was it was about two years from the time that they first contacted me to where we actually moved and I was teaching uh, at the university. Um, and that was in, we left Vegas in 2004. So I, I, was, I was teaching from 2004 to 2007. Um, but you know the the it's unfortunate that the 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 teaching profession doesn't pay as much as the professional work, and so where I was with my family and 
we had our third kid and my wife wasn't working. So I really needed to have both of those things going simultaneously. And um, the head of the department who kind of set up that it's okay for you to be in Las Vegas one week a month, one week out of every month, the, the head of that department left and the, the new head of the department said, said, you know, I think the way that you could get tenure is, uh, is by being the production manager of the department. <laughs> and so uh, I tried that for a little bit and suddenly just found myself right back in the same position where um, I was working, where I had, where I had made a, a quality of life decision. Um, I found myself just right back in the position of working too much. Um, right. And, you know, a lot of that I recognize is I, you know, I'm a, I have an entrepreneurial spirit and I like to take on challenges. So I'm not saying it, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a lot, uh, my own doing, but, uh, I was in that, I was in just in that precarious position. And then the head of the department, the, the entire department wanted me to start an MFA program. And I went so far as to put together the MFA program, uh, the outline and, you know, what I would do, you know, the cadence of how many students per year and kind of floated that idea to the rest of the department. And then Scott Fisher called me up and this whole time I had maintained, you know, part, I was working on, you know, quote unquote, part-time doing mechanical design and outside sales. Um, and uh, Scott called me up out of the blue said, look, uh, how, when can you be back in Vegas? And I said, uh, when can I be back in Vegas for a meeting or when can I be back, like back, back? And he said, we just got the, we just got the contract for, um, the show was uh, Zed, I think uh, that was, that was the working title, but it was um, Cirque Show in, um, in Japan, in Tokyo. And it has sent okay. Yeah, it has since closed, but um, but we had we hadn't done much with Cirque in the in the previous five years or so, and this was a great opportunity for us to jump back in with them, and um, so I I made the decision. I, I said, you know, I I have to pick which one, and what I was recognizing at the time was I wasn't being fair to my family, and I wasn't being fair to my students, and I was managing this. I was the production manager for the. Uh, at UT, the the theater is a uh, it's a Lort B uh, theater, and so the the students and the and the tech students get to work within that environment of a of a professional season, semi professional season, however you want to describe it. But I wasn't being fair to any of these aspects of my life. I wasn't the best designer I could be for Fisher. I wasn't the best you know husband, father, etc. And so I just had to make this decision, and. I just said to Scott, I said, I'd like to come back full time, but I want to do it from Tennessee. And so I started what has become working, this ability to work remotely. And um, so I left the university and went back to work for Fisher full time. And, but I did it from uh, Tennessee. Um, so that was in, that was in 2007. But in the meantime, sorry, I just took a drink. Um, a drink of water, that is. Um, in the meantime, while I was at the university, I was, I hadn't been to USITT in a while. And I had been, let's see, I was at USITT in 1995 
when it was in Vegas. And then because of being so busy with everything and, and helping build Fisher, um, I hadn't been to USITT in 10 years. So it was, it was now it was 2005 and I went to USITT in uh, Toronto, I think it was. And um, I was walking through the hotel uh, one night uh, after, after uh, you know, meeting some friends for some philosophical conversations. And um, Dan Culhane grabbed me. Uh, and Dan, uh, speaking of how I got my start, uh, Dan went to the same high school I went to. And he, um, as did Gareth Connors, by the way. Um, so I, I had known Dan. Yeah, so I actually, uh, to tell an old family secret, my sister dated Gareth Connors. So I, I like wish, I wish I knew this when I recorded the episode with him. <laughs> I like to remind him of that every once in a while. Fun, fun bit of trivia in the automation world. Yeah. Um, so I, I had known Dan for years and he saw me in the lobby, grabbed me and said, hey, you, you guys build cool stuff. Why don't you, you should really be involved in this standard. And I had no, I really had no idea what he was talking about. And he brought me up to the ESTA suite and to meet people. And next thing I knew, I was involved with the uh, NCE one six one standard for uh, powered rigging, and uh, sat on that uh, task group with uh, with just a, a bunch of icons of the industry. It was it was really um, uh, humbling to be in that room for the first time and everybody's introducing themselves and it's all these, all these companies that you've heard about and maybe done some work with, but uh, to have so many, um, uh, so many great people in one room is really, really a cool experience. Um, and, and still is. Uh, um, but yeah, we, we started, uh, I, I, I was jumping, I was jumping in the middle of, of that and didn't, had no idea what, um, what they had been working on and, and uh, just kind of jumped in the middle of it because we were at Fisher, we were, um, you know, we were designing machines that went uh, 30 miles an hour. We were, we were designing stunt machines that, that ran performers up to uh, 55 feet per second. Um, and those two numbers, I know somebody's going to do the math and those two numbers don't, don't equate, but, no, but, but, <laughs> 55 um, feet per feet second per, per second yeah in fact it was that one of those first usitts that i when i started going back that i was sitting in somebody was talking about chain motors and i accidentally i meant to say 16 feet per minute but i accidentally said 16 feet per second and there was a little bit of general laughter about how ridiculous is that but by then uh 16 feet per second was that was not a problem at all for what we right. do. So to for for people to visualize, most large sized high schools with a fly loft are going to be about fifty to sixty feet tall. So you're talking going from the deck to the roof pan in one second. Mm -hmm. That's that's fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we were we were pushing the envelope. Uh, it was it was. Um, Spider-Man 2, the the um, the movie with uh, Tobey Maguire back in mm -hmm. the 
it was that stunt team that approached us because they had been working with some Cirque uh, performers on the stunt team. And they said, hey, this company in Vegas builds, builds these fast machines. You guys should talk to them. And, uh, and they loved it because, because of the combination of speed and control, um, as opposed to some of the older techniques for doing stunt work where you, get, you can get high speed, but you can't, it's not as, uh, as repeatable as if you have a All right um but anyway i digress that uh it was harvey harvey sweet was the leader of that uh task group and um i didn't really it was it was after that i met you know i met jay jay Guerin and he told me the story about how they had um they had been trying the the what is now e1.4 um and i'm i haven't you know, haven't been involved as long as others. So, um, so forgive me if I have some of these details, um, not hundred percent correct, but the way, the way I heard it, <laughs> um, they had been working on what is now E1.4 for years and years and started out as being part of the USITT umbrella. And, um, that really Jay's book was born out of that experience of trying to create a standard. And, um, that that E1.4 standard uh, had started to include motorized rigging. And then they had chain motors as part of it. So it was all under one, it was all trying to be under one document. Um, and that was true about E161, that, that when I got involved, um, E161 had been split away from E14 so that you could uh, you could talk about rigging, counterweight rigging, and all of the safety standards that are involved with that differently than talking about where you can you can create that standard without having to also address all of the additional uh, concerns with motorized rigging. Um, and when we when so in 2005 when I started uh, with ESTA volunteering with ESTA um, uh, or with the technical standards program I should say to be specific um, the chain motor section was combined with with the wire rope hoists and and all motorized rigging and it was after it was a, a few years later that that got separated out and then ultimately chain motors got divided into the four sections of that standard so it's been uh, it was it was it was uh it was a learning experience and an eye-opening experience to really see what it takes to get a standard written and um you know, I went in with, I went in with rose-colored glasses because what I really wanted was to try to help create a standard where all of this automation equipment could talk to each other, the way that um, lighting equipment does. You know, with the DMX standard, uh, I I can go and I can buy a lighting console from one company and I can buy a mover from another company and I can plug them in and they talk to each other. Right. Those were the rose-colored glasses I had in 2005. Was let's make a standard where we can do that because um, it's just like we saw with lighting and the explosion of that uh, end of the industry. Um, the same thing appeared to be poised to happen um, in automation. And uh, I remember being at a session at USITT with uh, uh, I was sitting there listening to the session and, and there was somebody talking about. Uh, creating their own drive and they were 
you know, soldering a PCB board to to create basically to create a drive to to vary the frequency on a motor. And I walked out of that section session and I was shaking my head and I just uh, um, Alan Hendricks was in that same session and I turned to him and I said, uh, Alan, who wrote, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the book on my shelf to see if I pronounced his name wrong, but I can't read his name from here. So um, Alan wrote Mechanical Design for the Stage, uh, a fabulous book. And uh, he happened to be in the session and I and I had met him before. And I just, I turned to him and I said, I can't, I can't believe somebody's talking about building their own drive. Nobody talks about building their own dimmers. And he said to me, now they don't. But USITT 20 years ago, they sure did. And uh, that really kind of, uh, it was a, it was an eye-opening experience for me. It's like, oh yeah, we're, we're really in the beginning phases of, um, of where entertainment automation can go and should go ultimately. Um, so that was my, and to this day, it's what I really uh, like about the, the standards program is how do we all, um, how do we all come together um, with potentially competing ideas, but with the same mindset of we're going to make the decisions uh, from the standpoint of how are we going to be safe and what is right. the best practice for safety? Um, so yeah, that was that was uh, that took a while, but that was the bridge between the early days of Fisher and uh, and uh, how I got involved with the, the standards programs. So you um you you end up leaving Fisher uh a few years after you get involved with technical standards and started working for ZFX, which everyone knows has a performer flying company. Mm -hmm. Um while you're there, you propose the first standard for performer flying. And to me, you know, I, I tangentially touch on performer flying. I do some silk stuff. I don't do automation with performer flying. Mm -hmm. uh, but there had always been this, I don't know how to describe it. There, circus acts, flying circus acts had always been this own little group onto themselves yeah. with their own principles, their own traditions. Um, you can even say their own design factors. Mm -hmm. um, there was nothing that was offering, as you said, a way to create these visual effects with a certain amount of safety in mind that would allow someone to go and look at a document and say, hey, you should do this. And the reason why that might be important is because if you build a device to do something and it fails and you're in a lawsuit like we talked about and i've really latched onto this with chris schmidt you need to be able to defend your choices right. and following a nancy standard that's created by a trade organization is only going to help you be able to defend your choice saying hey we built this to this nancy standard um we did our due diligence what happened really was an accident and not an incident that we could have foreseen and prevented. Um, right. So 
let's talk about the your experience of transitioning to ZFX, what you learned there and what motivated you to offer up to create that document. Um, yeah, I had, uh, <clears throat> so I, I had gone back to work for Fisher full-time in 2007 and, um, and once again, got to a point where, uh, started to be very busy and, uh, but at the same time there, the, 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 the saying that you can't go home again, you know, was, was pretty true at that point <clears throat> The management within Fisher had had changed and I remember being in meetings and asking like oh well how why are we doing this like this and somebody said well we've always done it this way and I thought well um and the company had grown to be 100 100 employees um and it got it got to the point where I was looking looking for something different um and that that combined with uh you know the world gave us give us all an opportunity to explore different things in uh, 2008, 2009, uh, when the, when the uh, housing crisis happened. And I found myself in a spot where I thought, well, do we move back to Vegas? Um, do we, or, or is it time to go and look and do other things? And um, I had met, uh, I had known Robert Dean at ZFX. I had known him uh, from uh, the, from the Foy days early on. Um, didn't really mention that when, when as part of the Siegfried Roy experience, uh, I worked side by side with Joe McGeo, who's one of the subject matter experts on uh, the ETCP uh, council. And he, he um, we would work the show at night and then we would work at the Foy shop during the day. Um, and I met Robert Dean years earlier um, while working part-time at Foy. And then, um, I had met his business partner just at a, at a trade show, just kind of bumped into him. And, you know, she had said off the cuff, Hey, if you're ever looking for, looking for something different, you know, consider us. And, um, so it was the summer of 2008, fall of 2008. And, uh, uh, I gave him a call and I said, Hey, um, I think I might be, might be looking to make a move. Um, and I was, uh, the, the other part of it was, you know, my kids at that point were five, between the ages of five and 10. Uh, and my parents are still in Chicago. My wife's parents are in St. Louis, Missouri, and um, uh, didn't really want to move back to Vegas uh, because uh, didn't want to be that far from the grandparents, you know. The, uh, so the, the opportunity at ZFX was really, um, started to seem more appealing uh, the later and later we got into 2008. Um, and that was a tough call, the phone call to Joe McGeo to say, hey, I'm going to go be the general manager at ZFX. Um, and I think he had already heard through the grapevine, um, but he was pretty cool with it. And um, so in March of 2009, I um, started with ZFX and I was their general manager and then started doing a bunch of design work and uh, um, it was the first time even though we had done performer flying at Fisher it was the first time that I had worked full-time for a company that only flew performers um, 
and Robert has expanded since, and he does he does a lot more than just performers now. But um, it was it's a it's a different kind of company when that is the the daily activity. Um, and and you're right that the there is an art to it. And this you mentioned the circus performers. So a couple of projects we did at Fisher. One of the hurdles to overcome was um, there was a tactile kind of relationship between the operator and the performer that we would work with husband wife teams that you know even though we could program the entire move the the uh husband wanted to be on the joystick while his wife flew around uh, because that's how they did it in the manual version of things right um and you have to that's absolutely makes sense that that there's that trust relationship between the operator and the performer that has to exist but it has to do with the the um the the, the words eluding me the the not the foresight but being able to know how the performer is going to react to something so that if they are uh slightly ahead or slightly behind or if there is an error in their they're adjusting predict that's the word I was looking for that the operator can predict what the performer is going to do to maintain the safety as well as the the presentation of the performance. So that very much can be that symbiotic relationship of being able to predict what they're going to do, how they're going to react, what they're thinking to make sure that it, it happens well. And, and you think of the early circus acts um, and how they pulled these things off and without the technology, you know? So if it was, you know, people on the other end of the rope pulling it and knowing how fast and how long to pull it to get to a certain height and a certain amount of time, um, is really coordination and that's the art. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun challenge to, to, to find ways in which, automation can enhance that art right um, so yeah so then i started with them and um i at the same time we uh at, at fisher we had developed these high-speed flying machines for the stun industry largely um and we had we had uh the mod winches that that were um, in, initially, they came to us with the 30 mile an hour request, so, and that that's the 43 feet per second. But then we kept pushing the envelope, and I was researching effects of G-force on the human body because I was all of a sudden I was designing these machines that um, that could really impart some Gs into a performer. Um, and then uh, Broadway came and knocking for the um, boy, I've lived in Louisville a little too long. I've said y'all and came a knocking in the same podcast. <laughs> um, uh, the Broadway show, uh, Spider-Man was starting up and I was, when that show first started, I was with Fisher, but, but by the time it loaded in, I, I was no longer with the company. Uh, but I would get phone calls from the project managers and the designers working on that show asking, Hey, these um these winches, how fast can they really go? And I would look at the you know what sort of 
servo motors we had put on there and you know the what what are the ultimate limits of of those machines and i said well if you if you put a, a larger drive on this and you don't exceed the time limits you know you could really do this and this um but but i was advocating that that uh those machines were meant for the stunt industry where you can have a crash pad off uh, off camera and you can hit your effect and you can do you can do that uh, uh, in in uh, in a safe manner for the film industry the way the film industry does it um, and it was a it's a completely different um, experience to try to do that night after night on uh, in a Broadway show um, but I was I was tangential to most of that experience and and, and then ultimately um, was at uh, was at ZFX by the time that show opened. Um, and it, but it was it was through that experience and working at ZFX and helping uh, helping increase their their standards in terms of machinery and um, we did we did a lot of growing at ZFX along those lines as far as upgrading machinery that had um, that had uh, been built years before and um, we I just I just recognized that there were things that we could do with a with a standard that might uh, that might make things a little safer now that we were now that we were getting further and further away from that performer's partner pulling on a rope and getting closer and closer to I'm hitting the green button every night and watching what happens with these machines on stage. Um, and so the that was the idea with the performer uh, flying standard. I also recognized that I was I was in a I was in a relatively unique position in that um, I, I was working for Robert Dean, who was uh, who is owner of a flying company. I was friends with Joe McGeo, who managed a flying company, and I was and I knew and was friends with uh, Tracy Nunnally, who uh, owns. Um, uh, Vertigo, I think it's called Vertigo now. Uh, they, yes. Yeah, and um, so I was I was in a position where I could where I could pick up the phone and say, "Hey, Scott Fisher, Joe McGill, uh, let's get in a room together and let's talk about uh, the performer flying standard." And it had it, it had existed previously that there was an attempt uh, to write a standard. Um, but it was written in, it was, it was started before automation and high powered machinery had really um, taken off the way it has now. Um, there were, when they were first writing it, they, there were no 3D flying rigs and, and 30 mile an hour witches. Um, so I, I proposed it and Bill Sapsis in his infinite wisdom said, yeah, you shouldn't run it um, because you guys wind up getting really busy. Uh, and he was right. I, I enjoy working on the standards program, but uh, my design work makes it difficult for me to contemplate running a task group. Um, so it was run by uh, Bill Gorlin, and we had um, uh, Dana Bartholomew, Scott Fisher was there for the first uh, couple of meetings, I think. Uh, and we had a um, uh, bunch of people that, who's, I'm blanking on all the names now because I'm horrible with names, but uh, 
Rod, Rod Haney, uh, a rigger out of uh, the Vancouver area, was there yep. um, to offer his expertise, and it was it was really a great experience because we we were all representing companies that competed uh, on a certain level, uh, but we were there to write a standard to make sure that we that we kept people safe. Um, what do you think is the what are the top three things that people should take out of that standard, which is 1.43, the current version is dash 2016, and the title is Performer Flying Systems. What do you think the, the top three things that people should take out of that document are? Um, the uh, breaking redundancy being, being first and foremost, um, that in E161, you have the ability to use a a, 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 a high ratio non backdriving gearbox as the secondary uh, means of braking, and that's not allowed in uh, in E143. So you have the um, if something were to happen to your motor brake, you have another um, holding device directly coupled to the shaft. Um, that that's the big takeaway. The with all these standards, um, uh, risk assessment is a very important part. We, when I, when we were first working on E161, we hadn't really talked much about um, we hadn't really talked much about risk assessment, and it wasn't until we looked at the SEN standard that was being developed around the same time when the light bulb went off and we thought, we realized um, the the risk assessment really plays a, an important part and not not from the standpoint of uh, not from the standpoint of what can I get away with some people look at risk assessment in these documents and think oh well I don't really have to do any of these things because I I can just work my risk assessment in my favor and that's um, that's not the case that's not the point the point is to um, document the reasons why you're being safe to, to go through the process of a collaborative design uh, process to say, here's why we have these redundant breaks and here's why we have these design factors. Um, and I would say that's probably number two is that the difference in design factors for static lines versus um, dynamic lines, because there was, there was a lot of concern. One of, the, one of the things with performer flying is this illusion. When we talk about working with magicians, um, and part of the reason we proposed that this standard be be written was that uh, overseas they had the uh, uh, BGV C1 standard had had been written years earlier, um, and in, but in talking with Joe McGill and others, uh, there was a lot of concern that that trying to do a Peter Pan uh, flying system in uh, in Europe we might wind up in a situation where we have to have a, a retractable lifeline attached to the, the back of Peter Pan. And how do you, how do you create that illusion when you're trying to work with 12 to one uh, design factors and all of a sudden you've got quarter inch wire rope that's a lot harder to hide. Um, so some of the, some of those uh, design factor sections where, where you look at um, how is that uh, uh, how is that rope being used, and is it 
is it statically attached to something that is moving versus uh, a line that's going over um, pulleys, et cetera. It was interesting. I, I had a discussion with someone online a couple of weeks ago um, talking about specifically the design factors for a wire rope. So in general, in a broad stroke for entertainment rigging, there are two design factors on wire rope you would typically find. Five to one for slings. And that does come from industrial lifting, both OSHA and uh, ASME standards, where if you're you know, using a piece of wire rope and you put two thimbles on either end and, you know, make the eyes, that's a five to one design factor. And then if you do what we call running rigging, where you're taking that wire rope and it's not the bending by itself, it is the traversing bending of the wire rope over a shiv that increases fatigue on the wire rope. So then we use an eight to one design factor. If and I haven't looked at the document in a in a while. I believe you guys go higher than eight to one on on wire rope. That is to say, running rigging, correct? I uh, yes, but the one another important thing to to note is that um, the the standard isn't necessarily written uh, with those black and white design factors on the load that you're moving. Um, I think a, a key takeaway from really all of these standards now is the concept of characteristic load. And that, that part of that design and risk analysis is to look at what your loads are during accelerations. Um, and what, and usually, typically, most importantly, um, in the event of an e-stop. Um, and I say that the reason I was I'm saying usually, typically, is you know the, the high speed winches the accelerations get get to a point where the additional force required to accelerate the performer really do push that load difference between the static load and the um, and the and the the characteristic load. It really uh, widens that gap. Uh, right. but on, on most machines, especially in the E161 category, um, it's the peak loads that. What happens if you deadhead? Uh, up against or two block uh, a hoist system, uh, or what happens if you're going full speed and you hit the e-stop, um, and that that forces a category zero e-stop. What are those peak loads, and what are the design factors versus uh, versus peak? And that right. the the E143 standard uh, has that both for um, the lifting medium and the uh, and harnesses. Right. Yeah. It, and, and that's part of the reason why I, I created the video I did about the difference between uh, dynamic loads and shock loads, or more so clarifying that shock loads are a very specific type of dynamic load. Because as we're writing these standards, we're trying to be more precise with our terminology so that it allows people more flexibility when they're designing. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's kind of, and I've alluded to this before with engineers looking at local failure versus global failure. What we're trying to do is give more in, more information to people about local eh, local failure so that they can design better as well as looking at global failure. So from an engineer, local failure, 
an example that I use all the time is as a rigger, I want to know if a certain size I-beam will hold a certain amount of weight in the middle of it. You know, well, this six inch I-beam hold a thousand pounds. Well, I'm thinking about global failure. Will that beam bend or break? Whereas the engineer may say, yeah, that beam may hold a thousand pounds, but the beam clamp that you're going to use on the bottom flanges are going to overload the flanges at a thousand pounds because of that mounting method. And when you overload those flanges, then you're going to weaken the I-beam and then the whole thing is going to fail. So that's local failure. And there's a, a, a give and take in terms of how you design stuff. So ultimately what it's going back to is um, the discussion I had with someone was they said, well, the minimum design factor for wire rope and entertainment is 10 to 1. And I was like, that, that's that's a very broad statement to make. Um and it's and it's not, you know, depending on what you're doing it, the wire rope that goes from the trim chain down to your scenic element is a sling versus the wire rope going from the batten over the loft blocks to the arbor is running rigging versus the wire rope you're going to use on the automated hoist to fly Peter Pan. Um, right. And it goes to what uh, what Eric Rouse and his training has been very uh, fond of saying recently is it depends. Yes. <laughs> and it depends because of the risk assessment. Um, and something you said earlier uh, made me think of the fact that um, a beautiful example, I think, of the risk assessment is what you said was the difference between on those uh, the Fisher winches of being designed for TV or film where you have a crash pad versus mm -hmm. live performance where you don't. Your risk assessment, even though you're using the same equipment and the same people to say you're doing the same effect, the risk assessment is different for those because of that additional safety measure that you can take. Well, what happens if it fails? A person falls on the crash pad. Are we talking death? No. Certainly injury. You do that same thing and have the same incident in the live theater performance. That person isn't falling on a crash pad. They're falling on row five seat E. Mm -hmm. So, or row E seat five. Right. How do they label those things? Now, who came up with that? <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's it's very interesting. But um, I remember when the document was going through public review, some of the uh, issues we were trying to resolve, particularly from uh, aerial performers who were concerned about some of those design factors and requirements as it related to a silk performance or a ring performance. And we had to be very careful and figure out the correct wording for the standard to be applied to what we wanted it to be applied to, not be too broad, but then again, not be too specific. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's a, it, it, like the fall arrest standard, it is a very significant standard that the technical standards program was able to produce because it was the first at dealing with a high risk situation. Not saying that rigging is in high risk, but we're specifically talking about a person moving at height and, as you mentioned, at some extreme speeds and how do we deal with that and make sure that they don't go splat. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, 
I've been in plenty of conversations where people ask about performer flying and the risks involved. And one one of the things I point out is what's riskier having a uh, a 10,000 pound speaker stack over the front row at a concert or flying a, a 125 pound dancer. <clears throat> and the the risks are similar that they're that uh, from a safety standpoint, they both keep me up at night or really my my wife would laugh to hear that because I sleep pretty soundly. But uh, I, I should say both when approaching the design, I think about uh, how can I sleep well at night? Um, and it is this the, those attention to details and that and the, the point of these standards. Um, but there are there are unique things about perf performer flying that make it different than flying that speaker stack. And uh, and I, I didn't mean to skirt the question about design factors. The the for in the in the E one forty three standard, it's it's uh, ten to one on the working load limit and six six to one on the characteristic load and then three to one on peak. Um, but it's that term characteristic load that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to see that that is starting to enter into conversations that we have when we, uh, you know, at EPS, we, we get to work on a variety of different projects and, and having that, that term characteristic load start to appear in more and more conversations is great because it means that we're starting to think about these things um, differently. Uh, I remember taking the rigging seminars class with Jay. Um, I had the opportunity to take it with Jay Glarum and um, and uh, Harry Donovan. And Jay's phrase was, and similar to Eric's of the "it depends." Back then, Jay's phrase was, "We we apply these safety factors as a factor of ignorance. That we apply these because we don't know." what might happen with these systems that we're designing. And right. the reason with the performer flying standard, the reason we're not at like a 12 to one, just sort of a, as a blanket broad statement is because we've, over the years, we've learned to define that factor of ignorance to be what are, what is happening? What am I attaching to? And what are those dynamic forces what it, what goes into it that makes the makes up the characteristic load? It's not just the weight of the performer. It's not just the 125 dancer. It's it's the 125 pound dancer and her 30 pounds of costume. And what are the dynamic forces involved? So um, so it really is a complex standard from that standpoint because it really does force you to think about all those things. Yeah, and it, it's certainly not a, as you know what your average rigger wants is a, a black and white rule. It is this, it is not that. Um, and, it, and you can't be that broad. It, it has to be more finite than that so that you can get, as you said, not the half inch wire rope with the, you know, two and a half inch shackle on the 125 pound performer, but can be, eighth inch or whatever size wire rope and the appropriate hardware. So you create the illusion of, and maintain that uh, design factor and, and that safety for the, the performers. Yeah. So you mentioned EPS. Let's talk about the, the current uh, role that you facilitate, which is being vice president of entertainment project services. 
um, and and what you're doing there and and that that part of the story. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I had been with uh, I had been with ZFX for five years, and we had in the course of that time we had um, uh, increased business, and actually Robert uh, and his business partner purchased a full fledged machine shop. And um, uh, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school here, but um, <clears throat> expanded their operation to be not just a flying company, but a machine shop. Uh, purchased a machine shop, two water jet machines, five axis milling machines, the whole nine yards and the customer list. Um, so I found myself being general manager of a flying company and of a machine shop simultaneously. Um, and that was a great learning experience. And I've I've uh, I've learned a lot about the business side of business over the years, <clears throat> in addition to the design and engineering side. And um, uh, after after working with ZFX for uh, four or five years, it was yeah five years. And Stephen Michaelman, the owner of of EPS, approached me, and just a similar conversation at a trade show. Like if you ever think about doing something else, give me a call. And um, he, uh, he had been, EPS had been in business uh, for about seven years at the time. So he was, uh, uh, I should talk about Stephen Michaelman. Um, Stephen Michaelman, also a Penn State graduate. Um, I met him back in the 90s when he first moved to Vegas. And during that period, after I left the Siegfried Roy show, um, I had worked with him. He, I actually hired him to help me with my freelance uh, design work. Um, and we had worked together over the years. And then uh, I hired him at, uh, at Fisher. Um, and he came on board. Uh, and I hired him. Um, and I had to apologize to him years later for this. But... I hired him during that period where I knew I would be leaving to go to, to Tennessee. And uh, I knew that he could, that he could step in and, uh, and really do great things at Fisher. Um, and he did. Um, Stephen Michaelman designed the, um, uh, there's a, there's a um, big water show at a major theme park uh, in the Anaheim, California area that has these lifts that, submerse underwater and do all kinds of magical things. And Stephen Michaelman was the design and project management powerhouse behind that uh, behind that show, um, at least behind the Fisher Fisher's involvement. Uh, there was a lot of obviously a lot of integration, and um, none of these things happened because of one person. But um, he drove that bus for Fisher Technical. Um, you know how do how do we make how do we make stage lifts behave like submarines, um, and uh, all, all of the fun challenges that go behind a project like that, um, and and after working with Fisher for a while, then Stephen left and started his own uh, design firm, and that's uh, Entertainment Project Services. So EPS had been in business for a number of years, and he approached me and said that uh, he was at a point where he wanted to be able to uh, take on more projects and 
do bigger and cooler things. And and if I ever wanted to join him in designing cool stuff, I should give him a call. Um, so I did. I was ready for a change, and um, we we just started talking and looking at opportunities for when what would be a good uh, time to to do that. And I was I was having fun at ZFX. I really uh, enjoyed working there, uh, but I was uh, I was ready to to not be managing a machine shop and uh, a flying company. Um, so I, I joined Stephen in the spring of, oh, spring of 2014, I think it was. Yeah, so I've, it had been five years with ZFX. So ZFX was 09 to 14. Um, and we worked on, um, uh, the project is up and down now, so I, I think I can talk about it. But the first project, we, the first big project we worked on after I joined joined him was uh, uh, World, uh, sorry, not that one, um, Rivers of Light at uh, in Orlando at that park that has the animals. Um, and it was a super fun project with, uh, with non, um, there were no uh, operators on the on the floating craft. Um, I'm trying to pick my words carefully here. Uh-huh. It was a it was a it was a uh, an advancement of automation, the likes of which I hadn't uh, seen in quite some some time, uh, and and it was a, uh, just a lot of fun to to be back designing um, the the really big cool stuff, um, and and we've been doing that ever since. Uh, the 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 trick with joining Stephen was. Uh, as soon as I left uh, ZFX, that I I would get phone calls, and people would say, "Oh, hey, you've uh, you're you're with somebody else now. Can you can you build this? Can you can you guys design and build this machine for us?" And at the time, we had no interest in well, uh, to <laughs> to be fair, Stephen had no interest in building anything. He wanted to maintain just a, uh, the status of being a design firm. And it took me a while to get used to that because I was like, oh no, but we could, all we got to do is like get a guy with a welder and like we can do this. <laughs> it goes all the way back to the beginning. Get a guy with a welder. Exactly. So um, uh, we, it took, a, it took a solid year for me to, to realize, oh, I could like have this office and come to work and design stuff and then send those drawings back to the client that hired us and they can build it and they can do the test and adjust and they can do the install and then I can go and design the next thing. And it was, you know, it's a great extension of a career where I have that ability now to say, um, it's okay that I'm not out there turning the wrench on the machine. I'm going to be focusing on the design and I'm going to be focusing on how do we hire and train other designers so that we can be, um, we can be really good at what we do and we can be the best at um, designing cool stuff in the safest way possible. Um, and that's what we've done um, with one little exception in that uh, about two and a half years in, Stephen came to me and he said, hey, uh, somebody called me up and they want us to build stuff. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, we don't do that as you've told me many times. Um, but it was a situation where um, 
that little theme park in Southern California needed something done very quickly. And they wanted, um, we were already in the system uh, working on the design of this project. And uh, they didn't really have the time to go find somebody to build it. So they, they said- wanted, They wanted a turnkey solution, one, one PO. Exactly. And that's, that's what we've learned, you know, again, over the years is that people really do want that. They want that, non, that one-stop shopping of, yep. um, can you guys just make this thing happen? And so we've, we've done that. We've been smart about uh, collaborations. We have, a, we have a collaboration with uh, AMC, um, the machine shop. Our offices are right above. Uh, we occupy the second floor of AMC. And uh, so we, we're, uh, we're able to take on those, uh, those projects that require uh, that something be built. Um, and we've, we've done that recently. We've just spent the past... Uh, past two, three years working on projects that aren't open yet, so I can't can't even speak about them in a euphemistically kind of way. Um, but uh, we've we've been fortunate enough to to work on some really cool things, um, and we're working now on how do we how do we uh, uh, maintain our agility and and help people get back to work and uh you know prepare for when we're all uh sitting in theaters together again right um it's kind of cool i i appreciate when i do this and the questions that i normally ask i don't have to ask them you know one of the questions is who have some of your mentors been you've talked about that and i really i, I enjoy some of that organic conversation and storytelling um but i do want to hit a couple of quick questions um because i think there's some some things that you might bring to the table some interesting insight that might be different from some of the other guests so far um so one of the questions and you you had kind of mentioned this which was uh some of your fears of of what keeps you up at night but the question usually is besides dropping something, what is your biggest fear as a rigger? What's your biggest fear as someone who designs rigging systems? Um, we, you're always worried about that phone call of, Hey, this thing happened in the theater and, uh, or on the tour or in the wherever. Um, so it's, it's that uh, something that was designed for a specific purpose, you know, that piece of machinery lives lives on. And will that piece of machinery be used um, in the future for something that it wasn't intended to? That's, I'd say, um, one of my concerns, yeah. Um, Is there a tool either in your uh, fabrication association or in the design process or software that is uh just rocking your world right now um we're uh we're starting to look at uh as we work on bigger and bigger projects we're pushing the envelope on what inventor can do uh when you get into the thousands and thousands of parts um especially because one of the one of the joys and hindrances of 3D design these days is you can put in the fasteners with every detail and every thread, uh, but then you wind up with these um, 
with these models that are so huge, it's, it takes an hour to generate a simple drawing. So um, we're looking at, uh, uh, we've, we've always been an Autodesk, uh, Stephen and I have been Autodesk guys since forever. Um, and so, you know, we're within the Autodesk suite. Uh, we're looking at programs like Navisworks that are that are designed to help with coordination of really big projects um, that that require that models be integrated together and uh, allow you to visualize with your client and with your design team uh, and to do so without having to have you know a supercomputer at every desk. Um, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's that's what's exciting. I I, I fall into that a lot. I Typically, I'm not an OCD person, but when I'm working on drawings, I, I get so bogged down in details where years and years ago, before uh, Vectorworks Spotlight had the Genie Tower uh, tool or the Crank Up Lift tool, if you want to be generic, I did one in 3D. I went out to the shop, I measured everything, and I was doing the same thing. Every nut, every bolt, all the threading, how long was it, what was its size, what kind of nut it was it. And the right. problem is something that was supposed to be in a plan view, just where's the genie tower going? It's going right here. Ended up being like eight hours later and made the file 15 million times larger than it had to be. But dang it, I had it in 3D. And then they came out with the one, the plugin, and it changed height. And I was like, well, that was fun. <laughs> Moving on. What's yeah. on your rigor? What's on your rigor bucket list? Is there, and, and, and I know that's a difficult question because I think to a lot of listeners, especially people who are just getting into the business, they would hear what your career has been to date and say, you, you worked in Vegas, you've worked on theme park projects, you've worked on some really cool stuff, performer flying, what else is there left? But <sighs> I, I've realized that even for people who, like yourself, there may still be something that you haven't done that you're like, I would really like to do this. Like someone, some one of the guests mentioned, I'd really love to do a Super Bowl halftime show. So yeah. what what's on your regular bucket bucket list? Wow, you know, that's um that's a good question. Uh can I just say Super Bowl halftime show? Sure. <laughs> sure. The the <laughs> other one last last week was John Sharp said something with NASA. So I mean <laughs> Super Bowl and NASA, pretty good choices. Yeah, no, I've been very fortunate in in my career. Just luck, you know that the old saying of hard work combined with with luck, a little bit of luck. It, that I have been very fortunate. Um, one of my favorite shows I've worked on was uh, De La Guarda. Um, just raw power of performance uh, combined with uh, a little bit of cool technology. Um, Stephen Michaelman and I did the the flying rig that's at Disneyland that flies Tinkerbell across the park. Um, they redid it and they they it's now the flight of Nemo, uh, but we worked together on that. Um, and so it it is hard to think. I've never really been. Um, I've always been the person that executes the design rather than coming up with what the next cool thing is. Um, and that I just say that because. People would come to us, we'd work with magicians and they would say, well, what other tricks do you have in your bag? Like what other gags could you sell us? We're going to, we're going to buy this from you, but what else could you sell us? And uh, we would never, you know, we don't work that way. We, you know, we're, you, 
one of my favorite sayings is nothing's impossible. Um, when we worked on the pirate ships at, uh, at Buccaneer Bay, um, that was the last time I said something was impossible because they came to us late in the process and they said, we need to, we need to put this ship into dry dock. We need to be able to create a dam that, and then pump out all the water so we can replace the bearings on the, on the pirate ship that moves. And I said, no way. And I was, you know, I was young, I was 20, 25 ish, whatever. And I said, that's impossible. That'll never happen. And because at the bottom of that uh, lagoon, there's these, there's these, um, uh, like, uh, roller coaster style tubes that the ships are guided on. And mm -hmm. all of the piping and plumbing and, and everything on the floor of this, of this lagoon, concrete, you know, pool, basically. And the thought of creating a dam that could fit within all of that equipment, I just, I, I said, no way. In my mind, I was visualizing all the stuff that was all of the challenges. But sure enough, it happened. And um, we designed the dam system that would, would be installed in multiple pieces. And then uh, the water was pumped out. And, and that's what they did. They, they had that thing in dry dock uh, a few times in its, in its bath. So it was at that it was then that I realized that I would that I would not say the word impossible anymore. I would say that these are challenges and we can find with enough time, money, et cetera, you can you can solve almost any problem. Fast, good and cheap, pick two. Yeah. But I would say that if I had to come up with an answer now that I've now that I've blah blah long enough to think about it, um, rambled on. That's what I meant instead of blah, blah. Um, magnetic technology. And is there something that we can do with a levitation effect using um, powerful enough magnets? And that somebody might have already done this, but uh, I've never really explored that. But, um, you know, that myth of the anti-gravity pads. Yeah, yeah. That's a good answer. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, maybe we'll get some feedback from listeners saying, Hey, so-and-so is doing this. Um, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, what area in the industry do you think needs the greatest improvement? Now I have a guess as to what your answer could be, but I want to see if I'm right. So I'm going to write it down. I'll tell you if I'm lying when I answer or not. So <laughs> either way, I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer as well. Uh, I think I just I go back to that um, my rose-colored glasses of getting involved with E161 years and years ago that that um, we we need to find a way for automation systems to communicate together and it's being worked on that there are there are um, there's progress being made in the controls protocol groups etc. That there's the baby steps I think are happening um, but it really it uh, it re it'll require many minds to come together to make it a reality. But the notion that you can be working on a call and having, you know, a technician plug a chain motor into the wrong control system and, and what, uh, you know, the, the problems that can happen with, with when systems aren't uh, designed to a standard. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's only one standard so far, which I don't remember its number and its title is roughly common show file exchange format. I, it was written 
it's a, a TSP document. Uh, Michael Lichter from ETC uh, was a significant driving force behind that. And one of the one of the cool things about Michael Lichter is um, he's not from the states originally. He's German. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very involved in European standards writing as well. So he's been a fabulous bridge so that when we work on documents, we're not making them just for North America that we've tried to be encompassing for where all of our shows go. But the utopia of that document is on the theater side. Specifically, you can go in and have a Clancy control system, write your show. And then when you go to the next theater, that might be ETC, Vortec, XYZ manufacturer, you're not recreating your show from scratch with all of your cues for your automated rigging or your motorized rigging, um, that there could be this common show format. Um, that's been the first step, but that hasn't promulgated into the rest of automation. Right. Um, so that little sidebar. No, not the answer I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say training. And and the reason I would say that is because EPS has been uh, building their training programs um over the last 18 months when did eric start 18 months ago two years ago uh Even yeah no, closer to 18 months yeah 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 so as, yeah. as as we talked about with eric uh on the episode he was on where we talked about training uh that does seem to be a common answer for a lot of people is is more need for for good training out there um yes but... a- absolutely true and 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 Shame on me for not uh, going right there. Um, uh, I think I think that um, you know we're all used to walking into a theater and looking at a uh, at a light that doesn't have a safety cable, and we can point that out and we can say, "Hey, put a put a safety on that." Um, and we've been talking about uh, rigging uh, standards for a, a while. I think that we can we can the 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 training end should include more automation training. Um, yeah. You can walk in and identify a, a lighting instrument that needs a safety cable, but how many people walk in and, and ask, have the limits been set on that winch? Um, it, it reminds me of, I was talking with uh, in the Gareth episode about in the last 24 months, there's been a large increase in light duty motorized winches that are using dmx for their control processing mm-hmm. um and you're talking 25 pounds it's it's more of a little you know high-end social events you know hey the tent has a bunch of round led globes that go up and down and it's a kind of a chandelier type thing or a mobile and using the dmx to control that but i've seen on a particular tour of an acapella male group has these big globes that they're using dmx and it's over the performers heads and as gareth and i talked about there's no feedback loop on that so if something goes wrong you don't know until it goes crash and it may be slow and it may not be that heavy but it's still something you want to avoid um yeah and that's and you're absolutely right that the training Training needs to go hand in hand with these, with these, um, with these fantastic devices that we have available these days. Um, but yeah, and that's that kind of a 
uh, of a machine was brought up when we were working on E161 that before the concept of, of risk assessment entered the document, we were trying to create this like matrix of if-then scenarios that if your, if your hoist is lifting 25 pounds or less, you don't need a secondary brake. Um, but then that begged the question of two questions. One, what's the difference between 25 pounds and 26 pounds? Why do I all of a sudden need a break if it's 23, but not the other? Um, and the other was, if my daughter's dancing on stage and a 25 pound something falls on her, I'm not going to be really happy that that decision was made to not yeah. a second break. I would highly recommend, um, I'll see if I can put the, a link to this video. I'll search for it. I have a video which is basically testing of hard hats. And mm -hmm. they drop different objects that are not 25 pounds, sometimes 10 pounds, but at 25, 30 feet, and you're punching holes in a hard hat. So yeah. I think the overall idea that it has to be heavy to do damage is not particularly true once you have acceleration involved. Right. Um, yeah, well, I'm very proud of the, the training that we're doing at EPS. Eric has uh, pivoted magnific magnificently um, from, you know, we've all been through this, this, uh, this horrible turn of events and with this pandemic and Eric did a great job of, of saying, okay, how can I, how can I change the way I teach and how can I, how can I bring training into a virtual realm and have it maintain the same uh, degree of excitement and, and knowledge. And uh, he's done a great job with it. And yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're happy to be hosting those things. Absolutely. At, at EPS. Um, all right. Well, we've set a record. This 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 will this will go down as the longest podcast to date. I say to date because I'm sure I'll find the right guest and we'll we'll blow this one away. Well, Dana Bartholomew, the challenge has been has been. I, well, there's that, and all right. I I you know I try not to talk about guests that I'm trying to get because if I fail, I don't want to get people's hopes up. But maybe we can leverage a little uh, public pressure here. Uh, you mentioned his name earlier. Robert Dean, the owner of ZFX, uh -huh. has a uh, huge collection of CM hoists. He's a, a bit of a historian about CM hoists. And he's found old ones and rehabbed them. And it's all about the conquest of trying to find hoist serial number, number one, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, I, I reached out to him, sent him a message asking if he would like to record an episode. He hasn't responded. So maybe some people, maybe some people I'm talking to right now, some people listening <laughs> might say, hey, I think you should go on that podcast and talk about, you know, your business as well as uh, your hoists. Yeah, that, that could be a long one. That could be a fun one. <laughs> Absolutely. And he and I are, are still friendly. He he texts me every once in a while. He says, uh come on over to the shop and see what we're working on. And I was there just a, a week or so ago and he has, you are absolutely right. He's got uh, an amazing collection of um, chain motors and, uh, and chain, you know, manual chain hoist. Uh, right. It's incredible. And yeah, I think uh, uh, I would be happy to help make that happen. And I'm surprised. I, you know, I saw like, I, 
I said, I listened to the one with Meredith and she went like 90 minutes. And I thought, I don't really have the gift of gab. I'm not, I don't, uh, I'm more of a behind the scenes guy. That's why I didn't, I was a little nervous. I didn't think I'd be able to talk for an hour. Chris Schmidt said the same thing. He's like, you know, I, and I've joked, I think I've said this on air, you know, I get 20 minutes in and I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to get 60 minutes? Uh, we're, we're running through this so fast, but yeah. without fail, you know, it's, it's good conversation. So it's, uh, you know, it's exciting to see. So I'm going to ask you the tough one. This is, has been the hardest question to date. What is your best or worst rigor joke? Oh, um, <laughs> my best or worst rigor joke. Um, I am so bad at jokes. Uh, this is an embarrassing way to end. Um, so it's all right. We do have a feature on the show called phone a friend and I'm your friend and you can always, you know, phone me and I'll give you one. <laughs> Perfect. I'm going to have to phone a friend. I'm very glad. All right. Great jokes. How do you get a one-armed rigger out of the steel? Uh, I don't know. Even how do you get a one-armed rigger out of the steel? You wave at them. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to tell you something. It's hard finding rigor jokes. <laughs> it's actually not that easy. Um, excellent. Well, Joe, thank you for uh, spending some time talking about your journey in entertainment rigging and some of the fun experiences that you've had uh, in that journey. I think it was informative and kind of cool to talk with someone who's... Uh, who's been involved in a lot of the, the projects that we all see when we go to Vegas. And unfortunately we won't be going to LDI this year, but maybe next year and some of the other shows that are out there or yeah. will be out there. And, and, and I think that's important to say we're going to spring back. Absolutely. It might take a little bit of time. It's going to be different, but we'll get there. You know, that, that quote of, you know, theater has been dying for over 4,000 years. Well, I'm not dead yet. I've got some more time. Um, yeah, no. Oh, yeah. People like people like the. I mean, people need the social interaction that uh, live entertainment brings, and it'll be back. Absolutely, and it'll be bigger and better than than before. So uh, again, thank you for spending time. Um, I had uh, a lot of fun hearing the stories, and I'm sure the listeners will too. So thank you. Thank you. This was a pleasure. I uh, really love the podcast and thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, that's going to wrap it up for episode 18. So thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can.